Wow, we got a packed house here this morning. You guys like to do church. How about those testimonies from those people getting baptized this morning? Powerful, huh? Only God can do something like that. Only God. Great to see everybody this morning. Great to have everybody that's joining us online this morning also, maybe from all our different parts of the country, maybe different parts of the world. Great to have you too. We recognize your presence with us this morning. My name, yes, is Pastor John Palmieri, and I am from New Life in Elgin, our farthest west location. And so I send greetings from your family that meets out there every Sunday, part of your church. Think about it. If you travel out west, uh, that's part of your church, just like right here in the city, right? Uh, we have a lot of different locations for everybody to worship at. But I send greetings from uh, the Elgin family in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're here this morning for the glory of God alone. Amen. So I want to just, uh, first of all, before I get into the message, just thank uh, Pastor Mark and Pastor Josiah for uh, entrusting me this opportunity to, to bring the word to you. I know it's a big deal. These are some big shoes to fill up here with Pastor Mark and Josiah, some godly men, and to bring the word to you. They are great preachers, great speakers, and I love them dearly. Uh, I thank God for this church, New Life Midway. I've been a part of the New Life Community Church for over 30 years. Uh, Pastor Mark and I actually were roommates together at the good old Moody Bible Institute. So I knew Pastor Mark when he had hair and he knew me when I was skinnier. So um, I can tease him a little bit like that because you know we were roommates and we go way back. Uh, but uh, really, really excited to see what God's been doing here at New Life Community Church and thankful for the pastoral team. Uh, there's a lot that goes into to a Sunday morning service, a lot of behind-the-scenes kind of things going on, and I've become very aware of that. Again, here you've got a great system here. I'm a little, just a little bit jealous, just confessing that, man, I wish I had all this, all these volunteers like this at Elgin. Uh, but you guys are doing a great job here, and just always kudos to the volunteers. Let's give all the volunteers and support people. Amen. Whenever there's a work like this, there's unsung heroes, but we want to make sure every volunteer is known that you are a hero, and we really do deeply, deeply appreciate that. And that includes all of our central service staff that does a lot of work keeping all the administrative. You are a, a greatly, greatly, and deeply appreciated. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about me so you can connect with me just a little bit. You may know it already, so if you do know it, well, here it goes again. Um, I met my wife here at New Life over 30 years ago. We've been married 32 years. How about that? Three decades. Obviously, I married a saint to put up with me for three decades. Uh, she's a great woman, and we have three grown children now. Hard to believe, hard to believe I, I have three grown children and five grandchildren. I know I look really young, way too young to have five grandchildren. My newest grandchild is only four weeks old. And isn't that great? Yeah, he's a precious little guy. His name is Ezra, Ezra Caleb Palmieri. So I think my kids are trying to play a trick on me because they've named almost all the kids with an E. So we have Ezra, Emery, Ellie, Elijah, and then Malachi Joseph. That's also known as a Malachi Giuseppe, okay? That's the Italian version, okay? But I have, a, I have a wonderful family, been in ministry for a lot of years, been a part of New Life, can't imagine being a part of any other church, really excited to see and to be a part of what God is doing in our city and really in our world. Uh, and, I, and I really do sincerely mean that. It's just an exciting adventure. <clears throat> so let's get into the Word of God here this morning. I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 30. You can follow along on the PowerPoint also. But we're going to be in an Old Testament passage. Now, <clears throat> there's always the question, of why in the world should you listen to me this morning? I know that some of you may have come for your first time here, and you're here to see the baptism, uh, and thank you so much for doing it. It's such a special day for, for the folks that got baptized. Uh, and maybe you're just wondering, what am I doing with my time here? I understand your time is precious. So thank you for listening. I, I think it's important for you to listen this morning because I have at least five key things I want to share with you that I think are going to help you to overcome problems 
and pain, the two Ps, problems and pain. Has anybody here ever experienced problems or pain? Just raise your hand up and a little high. Okay, problems or pain. Yeah, that's every one of us, every one of us have experienced problems or pain. And it's real important to know how to deal with that, how to process it in our lives, because you're going to run in to issues. It's not a matter of, of, of how it's gonna be, it's a matter of when it's gonna be. It's gonna happen. And so you need to learn how to process that. So it's important to listen this morning. We all, we all experience stress in one de- from one degree or another. Uh, maybe you've experienced stress. Some of the highest causes of stress are, are work-related. Work How many can relate to that? Man, my work is just causing me stress. I'm so glad that tomorrow is Labor Day. And, I, and maybe you don't have to go to work. Good for you. Eat a couple extra ribs. You deserve it. Okay, or some arancera. You deserve it. I love that stuff. Man, that's good. I just kind of walk down around McKinley Park a little bit and I just smell all that and chat and I just love it, you know. It is inappropriate though when I go up to people and say, can I have some of that? And they don't even know me, you know. It's <laughs> tempting to do that. Work-related stress, money issues. Money always causes stress, right? You either have too much, which is never our problem really, or we don't have enough, or we don't have work. Uh, we need work, we need money issues, family drama, again and again and again. Just family drama all the time. It's just stressful, right? Health issues, maybe you're experiencing the pain of health issues or a loved one has health issues or maybe you have experienced some issues with COVID or the variant now creeping up on us a bit and violence in our city where, where it's, it's, it's scary to even drive on the expressways anymore. You know, I used to kind of raise my hands when somebody would cut me off going, yeah, I know I'm a pastor, I'm not supposed to do that. Now I'm afraid to because I'm going to get shot, you know. It's like, man, don't, don't even, it's like, just don't even say anything, just keep my head, you know, going straight into it's just, it's stressful. There's pain and stress in all of our lives from one degree or another. Maybe it's on a scale of one to 10, 10 being really bad and one being well, not so bad, but it's still there, right? There's always the underlying issue of pain and stress in our lives, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. We all have it. But the thought, what I'm gonna talk about this morning is, is like at the 10 scale, hitting up near 11 or 12, super stressful. 1 Samuel chapter 30, imagine David goes away, goes out of town with his, with his men, 600 men, they're doing their thing that they do. And they come back to their hometown called Ziklag, it was their hometown, Ziklag. They come back and they find that, listen, their kids, sons and daughters and their, and their wives were kidnapped. And their, and their village, their town, was burnt to the ground. Now, to have your wife and kids kidnapped would rank pretty high on the stress level, wouldn't it? I mean, let's just let it sink in for a minute. I mean, it really happened. They were out, they came back, their wives and their kids are gone. And the stress level is high. I mean, it's one thing to mess with me. I understand that. But if you mess with my kids, if you mess with my grandkids, that's a whole other category of messing with me, right? There's something that just comes out. The mama bear, right? The mama bear doesn't come out of me because I don't have any mama in me, but man, the papa bear comes out. The papa bear comes out and ready to roll. The stress level's high, and the feelings of helplessness, that rot gut, empty sense of, oh my goodness, what has happened to my loved ones. And if you know anything about the people who kidnapped these kids and the wives, they were, they were loser kind of guys. They were plunderers. They were terrorists. Uh, they were opportunists. This is the Amalekites who, who when Israel came out of, out of Egypt, the, the, pro, uh, the procession of Israelites that came out of Egypt, it was the Amalekites that attacked them, but they didn't have the guts to attack the Israelites on the front of the procession. They attacked the rear guard. They attacked the tail. They attacked where all the weak people were. They attacked, they attacked where the stragglers and the kids and the old people and the sick who couldn't quite, quite keep up. They attacked the, the weak side of it because they were wimpy, but they were ruthless and they really made God mad. You have to read up on the Amalekites, we don't have time for it, but these are the people 
who came in, burned down, raised Ziklag, burned it to the ground, and took all the kids. Let's read the story. 1 Samuel 30, 1 through 5. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. I want you to highlight or underline or mark or memorize verse 4. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Now that's literal. Have you ever cried? Cry a little bit, right? But have you ever wrenchingly mourned from inside out and just pouring out and grieving? That's the kind of pain they were going through. I mean, you took my kids, dude. You took my wife. Some of you are saying, I wish my husband would be kidnapped. He'd probably be happy about that, right? <laughs> but you messed with my family. And David had to process this. This is a big deal. This is a big crisis. David had to process this pain. He had to process this big crisis. And he did it by doing at least five things. Five things surface out of this passage that are potent. And you need to remember them. They're important. So that no matter the depth of your pain, no matter the depth of your problems, you need to do the same, the same five things. Let's take a look at them. Verse 6, what did David do? David first, his default mode was certainly not like mine. Mine would have been, Duke's up, let's rumble. I'm going to catch these guys. But David did something differently. David strengthened himself in the Lord. Look what it says in verse 6. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Now it's one thing that David has to experience his wife and kids being taken. It's a whole nother thing now when the guys that he could count on, when the guys that were out there rumbling with him, the 600, they became bitter, and they were looking for somebody to blame. And they put their eyes on the leader. That's what always happens, doesn't it? Looking for somebody to blame. And they put their target on David. It says here that David's friends turned on him. They became bitter, and they were pointing the finger at everybody else. They pointed it to David and said, David, we're going to stone you. And David is grieved now. Now he's distressed. Now he's all alone. Again, he could have gotten up in front of the men and tried to convince them, uh, you know, hey guys, it's not my fault, you know. But no, what did he do? What did he do with his problem? What did he do with his pain? What did he do when he was distressed? He took it to the Lord. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him, and he took that to the Lord. Let me ask you a question, honestly. Honestly answer me this. In your, own, in your own mind. How do you handle pain and problems when they come into your life? How do you, what's your pattern? How do you handle, if you were just to really be honest, if we were just to be really honest here, what would be the pattern? How do you deal with the pain and the difficulty, no matter what kind of pain it is? Is, it, is your default mode uh, anger to get your dukes up? And immediately defend yourself. You learn how to do that when you're in junior high, right? When the bullies are picking on you and you learn that, if, man, if I fight, at least I'll get, gain some ground or cover myself a little bit or just get angry at life, angry that you were given, uh, that you were shortchanged in life, that you had a multitude of stepfathers, your parents were divorced when you were young, you were abused, whatever the case, you're just mad. 
Is that the way we deal with pain in a healthy way? Is that the way the people and followers of God, the people who love God, who love Yahweh, is that, how, is that the healthy way to handle it? A lot of times that's our default mode, isn't it? Or maybe we blame shift like David's men did. We want to blame everybody else. Listen to me. You're stuck, and you've been stuck for a long time because your pattern and way of dealing with pain in your life and problems in your life is to point your finger at everybody else. It's your wife's fault. It's your kid's fault. It's your boss's fault. It's your history. It's your parents. It's whoever. And you want to blame shift and blame everybody else instead of being solution-minded and figuring out how to get yourself out of that mess. You want to blame everybody else. And then you find yourself just spinning your wheels over and over and over and over again. And you're going to stay there until you finally just step up to the place of following God's process in dealing with pain and problems. And some of us, unfortunately, we internalize the pain. We don't, we're good Christians, right? We're good Christians. I, I have pain in my life. I've experienced some pain. And I internalize it. I don't let it out. I don't talk really much about it. And what happens is I smother it. And there's kind of a resentment that I, that I smother down and I become bitter. And it has a splash effect on everybody around me. And everybody knows, you know, bitter Betty. If your name's Betty, I'm not picking on you, by the way. If there's a Betty in here, don't raise your hand, okay? We all know bitter Betty. It doesn't take much to get her to fly off the handle. Why? Because there's a smothered resentment. It's kind of like a campfire. The next morning when you wake up, you go to the campfire. It's still hot. There's still some coals. And all it takes is you to go and blow on it. And boom, it turns into a flame, right? We internalize the pain. We do all kinds of different things. We, we uh, regress the pain or we suppress the pain. And we've been disappointed because maybe uh, our kids haven't called us. We're older and it feels like our kids have abandoned us. Or, or we're just, we've been hurt by other people or taken advantage of. And somebody took, took the inheritance and ran off with it. And I didn't get anything and I'm stuck here because there was an injustice that occurred. Whatever the case, and you suppress it. And what happens is you begin to start to feel like all alone. And you enter into this pity party and you enter into this mess of, of taking the pain and blaming and, and chewing on it over and over and over again to the point where now you begin to feel like God has abandoned you and he's not hearing your prayers and you're not getting any kind of breakthrough. You see, when we handle our pain and our problems in the wrong way, we get ourselves in a boatload of trouble. And then it's exasperated upon one problem, upon another, to another. It's like a big nest that we need to kind of untangle to get down to the core of what the real issue is. Listen, this is something that you need to get right. You need to get this one right. We're on this side of heaven, and on this side of heaven, we're going to have pain, and we're going to have problems. Now, now, glory is in the future, and that's my hope, and that's my purpose, and that's my meaning, and that's what I move towards, and that's my anticipation, and that's what motivates me. But in the meantime, I've got to be able to biblically process pain and problems in my life in a way that honors God, just like David did. When you're facing big problems and you're under immense pressure, when you've cried all that you can cry until you can weep no more, you have a choice. You can either deal with the pain the way you've always done it, or you can take the pain and you can bring it to God. You can do what David did. Verse 6 says that David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. The ESV says he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That's a more accurate translation of the Hebrew. He went to the Lord with his problem. His kids were kidnapped. Men were all against him. He was in a crisis point. And what David did is that David took his broken heart. Yes, that was his problem. He really had a broken heart. And he took that broken heart. His first default mode was God. And he knew God. He knew in his core that God was good, that God is loving, that God is kind, that God is merciful, that God is generous, that God is gracious, that God in his very essence is true and that he is faithful. And maybe David learned that when he was out being a shepherd boy, when he was shepherding the sheep, maybe he saw the stars and the beauty of nature and he understood God and he turned not to worshiping the stars in the sky, but to worshiping the one who created them. 
And he built this relationship with God so that when the hard times came, David's default mode was God. And he did what? He strengthened himself in the Lord. The text means in the, in the original language here, it's a, he, he was in a, went into a reflective mode. He went back into a reflective mode. He strengthened. He must have got away in a place and just started thinking about, God, you were faithful here. You were faithful there. You were faithful here. You were faithful there. You are a good God. You've been so merciful to me. And he began to remember how God has had his hand. You know, God has had his hand on your life, your whole life. Your whole life. God has had his hand on you. You may not recognize it. You may not believe it. You may scoff at what I say this morning, but I want to tell you something true. God has been holding you by the hand from since you were a little girl, since you were a little boy, and he's not going to abandon you now. David understood that. So when the hard times came, when, when the scale of stress went up to 10, 11, 12, his default mode was Jesus God. God help me, God. That's what it was. And he began to reflect. I think David knew in his core the goodness and kindness of God. He took his broken heart. He took his broken heart before God. All the pieces, man, to take my, to take my kids, to kidnap them. He had a broken heart. And you need to understand this this morning. That if you have a broken heart, some of you, some of you need to come to terms with the fact that you even have a broken heart. That's an important thing. It's an, I'll, I'll get on that in a minute. But he took his broken heart before God, and you need to understand this, that if your heart is broken, and I'm not talking about some, maybe it's a romantic breakup, whatever the, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking just about the pain in your life, the disappointment that you've been carrying around for so long. David took it before God because, see, David understood. And it's important that you get this, that Jesus is about his number one priority, forgiveness of sins of mankind, eternal life, but also that he would heal the brokenhearted. When Jesus was inaugurating his public ministry, what he did is he opened the scroll of Isaiah and he read something so powerful. And I want you, I'm going to read, I just want you to listen to the heart language. This is a prophecy of Jesus and his primary ministry. It says this in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Listen for the heart language. Listen for the heart language. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has, appoint, has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Good news always lifts our spirits, right? He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort all who mourn. Hear the heart language? to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, beauty for ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And here's the key that I love, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. God has come to heal your broken heart. God has come to pour oil of gladness instead of mourning over your life. That you may be called an oak of righteousness. That the pain that, you, that has brought instability into your life, God wants to change that, heal that up, so that you would be strong like an oak tree. An oak of righteousness. And he does it for his glory. He says, the planting of the Lord. It's the Lord who plants you. It's the Lord who makes you strong like an oak tree. When you take your pain and your broken heart before God, he roots you and grounds you like a strong oak tree. And I see on the southwest side of Chicago, oak trees all over the place. I see oaks of righteousness all over the place. I see it all over the place of those of you that are watching online. Oaks of righteousness. But you don't become an oak of righteousness until you take your brokenness before the Lord and find your strength in Him because there isn't any other way to do it. And recognize that this is part of Jesus' mission. It's part of His design. It's in prophecy. It's Isaiah 61. And it's here and it's now and it's available today to no longer allow yourself to be steeped in addiction, to suffer the consequences of your anger, to believe the lie that depression is your lot in life. Those days are over. Too long have we lived with a broken heart. 
and believed that our problem was anger. Too long have you carried the pain of a broken heart. It felt like that you're stuck in depression. No more. Just like David, take your broken heart and give it to God because he wants to heal your brokenness and strengthen you. Why? That you may be an oak tree of righteousness. So David, first point, it's almost like I should have an altar call right now. The first point is this, that David strengthened himself in the Lord. Could you just say that to your neighbor? Strengthen yourself in the Lord. Strengthen yourself in the Lord. Take your broken heart to the Lord this morning. If that's all you get out of this message, then you've gotten a big piece. But I'm going to throw some more prime rib out this morning. I'm going to throw out some prime rib. The stuff that I'm sharing with you this morning is critical. I've, been, I've known the Lord for 40 years. I'm not talking as a newbie anymore. I'm 58. I might have 20 more years. I'm preaching from my guts this morning. I'm preaching from my heart, from my experience. Okay? I've had to earn every one of these gray hairs. That's why I got a goatee. I'm proud of every one of them. I've earned them. I raised two teenage daughters. I've earned every one of these gray hairs. So David strengthened himself in the Lord, but David also did this. David sought guidance from the Lord. Verse 7 and 8. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And God responded to David and said, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. David took the ephod. The ephod, don't let that distract you too much. The ephod was just a piece of the tabernacle. David had to follow a priestly protocol. The only thing he had from the tabernacle was the ephod, which was like a loincloth that the priest would put on when he consulted God. David couldn't go to the tabernacle because Saul was the anointed king. Saul was the enemy of David at that time. Saul was over Jerusalem. David couldn't get to the tabernacle. But what he did have, he put it on as a priestly king, and he sought the guidance of God. He had a problem, he strengthened himself in the Lord. Secondly, he sought God's guidance. Should I pursue? And God said, pursue. And God doesn't mince words, he doesn't waste words, he doesn't use words that he shouldn't use. God's, when God says something, everything that he says is very important. And oftentimes, all he has to say is one word. All David really needed to hear was, pursue. And when David heard, pursue, for you shall surely overtake them and shall surely rescue. I want to consult God when I have a problem. The Bible says in Philippians, be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication. Let your request be made known to God, that the peace of God would guard you, guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Give them some thanks while you're doing it at the same time. Why? That your heart would be, would, would be guarded and that your mind would be guarded. The two things that we, that we battle with. He says, if you got something anxious, bring it before the Lord. The New Testament's saying the same thing. David, a priestly king, he sought God and he, David heard from God. I believe that God still speaks today. God speaks through his general revelation of beautiful sunsets and beautiful birds and animals and all of nature, but God speaks through his specific revelation, which is the written word of God, inspired and perfect in every way. But God also speaks to us in our spirit in prayer. If we have the ears to hear him, number, number one, number two, if we're praying, if we're even bringing it before him, I have a sneaky suspicion that a lot of us think that we know what's best for us when we're experiencing problems and difficulty and pain. Our first default as humans is to rely on our own understanding. But God says, rely not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. He will give you the guidance you need when you're in the midst of your problem. But you've got to seek him. You've got to have the ears to hear. And today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts like you did when you were rebellious. When you were out there partying, going to all the, all the party places, Prime and Tender over here. I remember there was a place called Prime and Tender. 
Oh, I knew I struck a heart of some people there. I knew if I said prime and tender, y'all weren't thinking about back of the yards, the meat packing place. You're thinking of the, some, some joint down the road over here on Archer Avenue years ago called prime. Back when you were in your prime and tender days, you weren't listening. You didn't have ears to hear. You were all worried about what everybody thought you looked like. But when you seek God, you have to have ears to hear. Don't harden your heart when you hear his voice like you did when you were in rebellion. Unplug those ears so that you could hear the voice of God so that when you're in the midst of your problem, you have the guidance and the insight from divine revelation to somebody who's for you and not against you. How could you not want to seek him? How could you not want to get your strength in him? It's there, it's for you. He's with us on this side of heaven. You've got to believe that and not harden your heart, Hebrews 3.15. So David processed his pain by strengthening himself in the Lord, sought guidance from the Lord, and David was a solution-minded man. Verse 9 and 10. So David set out. As soon as he heard, all he needed to hear was pursue. And it says that David set out. And the 600 men who were with him and they went to the brook Bazor. So 600 men, the 600 men who just were on a big long trip, come to their hometown, it's burnt to the ground, their wives and kids are gone, they're tired. When I come from a long trip, I want to rest. First thing I want to do. They didn't have time to rest. These guys got on their horses. If they were a biker gang, they would have got on their Harleys and they would have pursued. But there weren't any Harleys back then, unfortunately, so they got on their horses. They weren't ponies. Okay? They got on their horses and they pursued. These were bad dudes. They were, they were tough guys. Listen to how the story goes. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the, bo the brook Bezor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. These guys were on the pursuit. And did you see the math that was happening? 600 men left. They get to the brook before they cross over the river. 200 of the guys peter out. They're just too tired to go. But David didn't sit around and say, well, wait a minute, guys, stop, everybody, stop. You know, 200 of us here are too tired to go, and let's, let's do a vote. Who, should we go or should we rest? Did David do that? Do you think David even had an inclination? Do you think he was worried about how everybody felt about whether they should pursue or not? He was like, I'm going. Okay, guys, you 200 stay here, not a problem. 400 of us went, we crossed the river, and they went and they pursued. David, I bet that David didn't take a vote saying, hey, everybody, should we cross? Let's do a vote real quick. Okay, two-thirds say we should go, another two don't, we shouldn't go, no. There wasn't any of that. David was a decisive strong leader who God spoke to and he said, this is where we're going. And 600 men that were misfits rallied around him and followed him where he should go. And that's the kind of pastor that you have in this church. And his name is Mark Job. Mark didn't pay me to say that, by the way. But I have only a few opportunities land behind this pulpit at Midway, and I sure wanted to say that, because I believe, I believe we have a David in this pulpit, two Davids, Mark Job and Josiah Job. Believe me, believe me. David had the heart of a lion. He was brave and courageous. He also had a deep and un unrelenting, unending love for God. And he was able to navigate the tension between those two to have a heart that's courageous and decisive, the heart of a lion, but also at the same time an unending love for God. Yes, both can exist. You can be strong and courageous and tough and be the greatest, strongest man that you were called to be, the strongest woman that you were ever called to be, and still have a deep love and tenderness towards God. David was strong and decisive, but I believe David was also a hugger. How could he not be after all the beautiful psalms that he's written? He probably hugged those big burly men that said, let's go, David. He was able to buy their loyalty, not with money, but by his character. No wonder he was called a man after God's own heart. These were a ragtag team 
if they were biker dudes, yes, they would have been uh, tough dudes, but they weren't. But they were like biker dudes on horses, okay? So he strengthened himself in the Lord. He sought guidance from God. He was solution-minded. He said, we're going, even though 200 are staying, we're going. And David was resolved to follow through. Verse 10, a little bit more on these 200 guys. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook of the sore. I still think there's something here for us. 200 of the men were too tired. David pressed on. And I think about those 200 men if I was one of them. I would have been devastated that somebody else had to go run and, and rescue my wife. Maybe some of the 200 guys were older. They had the heart, but their body had died out. How difficult that had to be for them. You know, maybe some of them just had one too many cheeseburgers and they just couldn't carry the extra weight to chase these guys. It makes me want to eat less portillos, okay? I love it. But for some reason, they were too exhausted, right? And I think about those 200 men. I'm like, man, I, I, I want to be the guy that's... I want to be the guy that's crossing the river. I want to be one of the 400. I don't want to be... And just men, just, just listen up here for a second. When Paul was writing to his protege, Timothy, he told Timothy, he was like Timothy's coach, and he told Timothy, Timothy, you need to be ready in season and out of season. There'll be times where, where it's the season and you need to go. You need to be ready. And there'll be times where it's out of season. So when you're out of season, don't allow yourself to become lax in your spirituality. Don't allow yourself to not have the cutting edge. Don't allow yourself to become dull. Be ready because you never know when you're going to be called upon to rescue your wife and your kids. <laughs> you connect the dots on whatever, however you want to make it happen. You need to be ready for whatever God calls you to. Don't allow yourself to grow dull spiritually. Be sharp, be on the ball, and be ready. And then David defeated the Amalekites, the plunderers, the cowards, the terrorists, and he rescued his wives and children. And he did it because he entrusted his pain and problem to the Lord. He pursued the kidnappers and rescued his family. And in this rescue, which I'm going to read here in a second, Three big leadership lessons rise to the surface, and they're part of this whole way that we process pain. First of all, David respected the least. Look what it says in verse 11. As the men were pursuing now, the 400 men, they stumbled on an Egyptian slave. Look what it says. They found an Egyptian slave in the open country and brought him to David. The Egyptian slave was left for dead by the Amalekites as they were bringing the women and the children away. They left the slave because he was sick. So they left him to die. He was out there like three days with no food, no water, and he was faint. And what David did to this guy who seemed to be of insignificant value is that he honored him. He gave him some dates and raisins. I guess they carried that around with them. No Slim Jims, no beef jerky, just dates and raisins and some water. And he regained his strength and he was able to lead David and his band of men to the, right to the Amalekites. The Amalekites left him there, but David honored him, fed him, and, and wisely used this guy to help him find the Amalekites. I like what the Life Application Bible says on the application to this. It says, treat those you meet with respect and dignity, no matter how insignificant they may be. You never know how God will use them to help you or haunt you, depending on your response to them. It's kind of like the bully who picked on the kid in junior high school, called him names, picked on him, picked on him. Picked on. Later on, that kid that he was picking on ended up being his boss. Whoa, whoa. Listen to me. Treat people with respect. We need more of that in our country, in our city. Amen. Because you never know about the little guy. The little nerdy guy, he's probably the smartest guy. He could run circles around you when it comes to smarts. And believe me, your muscles are going to wear out, but his brain is going to take you for a ride. Okay? Treat people with respect. And listen to the victory here. And when he, the slave, had taken him, David, down to the Amalekite camp, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, 
eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. They were partying. The Egyptian brought them up to the valley. David's looking down. All the Amalekites are partying. And the Malachites are thinking, man, we got it, man. Give me another drink. This is great. They're dancing. They're, they got all the women and the children. They think they want a big, they think they want a big victory, right? Blind and stupid. They didn't know that there were 400 swords drawn with angry husbands ready and, 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 and dads ready to go rescue their families. Oh, how the wicked party thinking everything's cool and great, not knowing the judgment runs quickly. And so, listen to what it says. They were eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken. And David struck them down, verse 17. And David struck them down from twilight. So when he got there, it was the, eve, the sun was setting. He struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, 24-hour battle. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. Those, those men would get it later. David recovered all the Amalekites had taken, and David, David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil, or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. God said, pursue them. You will surely take them. Go, David. Go get them. And then David honored, and this is powerful, he honored the 200 men who were too exhausted to follow through. I want you to hear this. We're almost done here, but let me just share it, read this to you. Then David came to the 200 men. He's on his way back now. He's won the battle. He's got all the spoils. The Amalekites had all the spoils from David's hometown, but they also had a bunch of stuff they got from the Philistines. So they had a bunch of gold, and David got all of it. And then David came back to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. So David's coming back and he's going back to 200 men and the wives are with him all and the, hus the husbands that were left behind, the men who were left behind, they go out to greet David, the conquering king. And there's, there's, I'm sure that there's a, a sense of potential shame that I couldn't be there, but there's a sense of, of, of gratitude because I'm going to be with my wife and kids and everybody's okay. And, and, and there's just an exuberance, but there's also a timidity as they go out to meet him. And some of the, some of the men, some of the 400 men, the Bible categorizes them as wicked and worthless. Some of the 400 men who went with David, the Bible categorizes them as wicked and worthless. And here's why. Verse 22. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they, the 200 men who were too tired, did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. We're not going to let you have any of the goods because you guys were too tired to go out and fight with us. Only the men who went to the battle and fought are the men who get to keep the goods. You can have your wife and kids, great, and then depart. And then David stepped up as a man of God would. As a man of God would. And he said this, but David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who will listen to you in this matter anyway? Who's going to listen to you guys? Because what you're saying isn't right. That's what he's saying. Who will listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage, the supplies. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. Bottom, isn't that powerful? Bottom line is this, David honored the 200 men. He could have shamed them, but he honored the 200 men. No wonder he's a called, no wonder he's called a man after God's own heart, because you know what? That's the kind of stuff God does. That's the kind of stuff Jesus does. That's the kind of stuff that comes out of you when you're running tight with God. When you're running tight with God, when you're taking your problems to the Lord, when you're seeking his guidance, when you have a mind to bring about solutions, when you're resolved to follow through, 
When you're tight with God, good things splash forth from your life and it affects everybody, particularly your children. And may I even say, now that I'm a grandfather, your grandchildren. It's a splash effect. Amen. It's okay to clap in this house. And then I love this last piece and I'm almost done. The worship team can, can make their way on up here. Listen to this. David remembered and honored his elders. Look what it says in verse 26. When David came back to Ziklag now, he sent part of the spoil of the battle to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel and Ramoth and Negev, and they names all the different towns, all the towns that David and his men had roamed. So David honored his elders. I like that. These were his friends. These were leaders in these different towns. These were older and wiser men that had been around, men that loved God, men that may have had a few gray hairs. And I want to say this, that as our church grows and transitions, and very intentionally, which I'm so proud of, our church transitioning to younger generation for the first time in our history of 30 plus odd years, and we're seeing it right in front of us, a healthy and godly, God-ordained transition of leadership from the old generation to the, to, the, to the young generation, and the old generation is still hanging around. So can I say to the young generation, the young generation, honor your elders. Honor your elders. Because there's been a lot of sacrifice, push, press, obedience, hacking through the jungle, dealing with your, our own insecurities and issues. And I've been around long enough to have experienced it. I remember when New Life Community Church was 25 people. And so David did this. David respected the least. He honored 200 men who were too exhausted. He didn't shame them. And he remembered his elders. Can it get any better than this? What a powerful story this morning. And you know what's so beautiful about this story? Is that David in many ways is a type of Christ. He's a type of Christ. See, David experienced pain just like Christ experienced pain when he went to the cross. And bore the sins of the world. David strengthened himself in the Lord. Jesus entrusted himself to the Father over and over again when he was falsely accused. David resolved to follow Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, prayed to the point where his capillaries were breaking, and he bled and said, not my will, but your will be done. David rescued the captives, and Jesus rescued you. Amen. David honored his men. Jesus restored and honored Peter who betrayed him and his disciples who abandoned him. And I just want to say this morning with clarity from my voice and clarity from my heart that God is for you this morning. You just need to take your pain to him. Take your issue, take your problem, take your doubt, take your fear, take your skepticism, take whatever mess you have in your hands and offer it to God you need to know this morning that God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, to condemn you, to whack you over the head every time you did something bad. Jesus took the whipping. He took the scorning. He took the shame. It was all nailed to the cross. He loves you. And he's not been sent to condemn the world, but to save the world from our sins. That we would have eternal life, that we wouldn't experience a second death. An eternity in hell, separated from God. Jesus has prevented that. His death on the cross was enough for the forgiveness of our sins. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because you've not believed in the one and only Son of God. Will you this morning receive him? Will you this morning say, enough is enough? I need God. For some of you this morning, the words that you've heard from this pulpit were like arrows right into your heart. You need to respond to that 
at this moment, at this critical moment, don't allow yourself to be distracted. Because what I want you to do is I want you to, when we stand together, I want you to cup your hands together and make a cup. And it's just you now, not the person beside you, not the person in front of you or behind you. You're going to cup your hands. Stand up with me. Stand up together. Here's what I want you to do. Cup your hands together. Just you and the Lord and say, and say, God, in this, in my hands is my brokenness. In my hands is my broken heart. I want you to offer it to him. Offer him your pain. Offer him your ashes. Offer him your failures, your anxieties, your worries, and let him give you beauty. Father, you see every hand that is open in this place. You see every cup that has been made with every hand that is in this place this morning. And God, you see the brokenness that's there, the brokenness of heart. You see the problems, you see the pain, you see the crisis, you see the issue. And Father, I'm praying a pastoral prayer over this congregation and everyone that's in it. That God, you would comfort all who mourn. God, that you would grant to those who mourn in Zion beauty for ashes and that you would replace the brokenness that's in every hand with oil of gladness. That a supernatural oil of gladness would pour forth from your presence into every hand, over every head, from crown to foot. A supernatural oil, God, that would be poured out over your people that in their spirit, deep within, that there would be a shift and a change, and an exchange of a broken heart to him who is able to heal. Yes, you, God. And that there would be a planting of the Lord here in this place. That right now there would be a planting of the Lord in this house. That there would be oaks of righteousness that spring forth all over the south side of Chicago. Oaks that provide shelter and strength and shade to a world that's scorched in pain. And that you would do it, God, that no man would be glorified, but that you alone would receive the glory. So in the name of Jesus, oil pour forth in this place. Oil of gladness flow through this place. Holy Spirit, blow through this place. Supernaturally move. If you're saying this morning, Pastor, I want to exchange my broken heart before the Lord, take the next step and make yourself available at this altar. Just come before God, the supernatural moment, this holy ground that's here, and exchange that brokenness for the Lord. If you're saying, Pastor, I need Jesus, I need him as my Savior. I believe I don't want to walk in condemnation. I want salvation. I want to take the step of baptism. I need Jesus. Come to the altar. There's people who want to pray for you. Come to the altar as we sing this song. You may make your way forward at this time. <laughs>